0: Before we get started, I wanted to thank Prevail Infoworks, the sponsor of today's podcast. Prevail Infoworks is the only global, full-service, tech-enabled CRO and e-clinical service provider harnessing historical and publication data alongside ongoing study data in real time. Get the most out of your study data and schedule a demonstration of this service for yourself at www prevailinfoworks.com and be sure to meet the prevail team at the Outsourcing Clinical Trials East Coast Conference in May or at their offices in Philadelphia. Again, take a moment and explore their new look website at www.prevailinfoworks.com. Check them out. Hey listeners of the Bio Report, I want to tell you about a new member benefit from the California Technology Council. CTC has teamed with Reprovada to offer members six months of Reprovada's COT Network service for free, which gives companies the power of a VPN at a fraction of the cost. A remote, flexible workforce is the new normal, but most corporate networks aren't built to accommodate work from home at scale. Reprivata's COT Network offers an easily deployable, affordable, and scalable solution to securely enable remote workers and protect the corporate network. To learn more about this and other member benefits, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. While the revolution in genomics has led to rapid improvements in the cost and speed of sequencing and created new insights into the genetic drivers of health and wellness, proteomics has lagged behind. Being able to capture a comprehensive view of the changing levels of proteins in an individual could play a significant role in bringing about an era of precision medicine. SomaLogic is providing a push in that direction with its SomaScan discovery platform, which can read 5,000 protein measurements in the blood through a single assay. We spoke to Roy Smythe, CEO of SomaLogic, about the role proteins play in health and wellness, the way the company's technology works, and the opportunity for it to help advance the area of precision medicine. Roy, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about proteomics, somalogic, and, and the ability to run a test of 5,000 proteins in the blood to gain new insights into health and disease. I, I want to talk about two specific areas that you're working in, but before we do that, perhaps we can begin with why someone would want to sample 5,000 proteins at once. We, we think of looking for a specific protein that's a, a biomarker for a disease, but What's the benefit of looking at this whole realm of proteins?
1: Sure. well, and that's that's really the the crux of uh, of what's different uh, about you know what we do here at Semologic, uh you know, on this uh, developing diagnostic side, and that is that you know we we've known for a long time that um, proteins would be the best information source for, human biology and potentially, you know, to predict things about conditions and disease. But the problem has been, you know, measuring enough proteins at any one time to get what I would call uh, a full body signal. Um, if you think about that, the comparator here is, you know, we, we believe that since we can measure all the genes in the human body that, that you know, doing polygenic risk assessment, looking at the expression of all those genes may give us some information about someone's risk for things, we can come back to that later. As it turns out, that approach is not as good as we would hoped it would be. Um, and the reason it's not as good as we would hoped it would be is because genes aren't dynamic; they don't change over time, they don't change with age, they don't change with, um, uh, you know, the, your your genome is the same at age twenty five as it is at age forty five and sixty five. Your genome doesn't change when you're sick. Your genome doesn't change when you take drugs. But all of those things change um with your with your proteome but the problem has been you know measuring enough proteins at any one time to get sort of a full body signal um, rather than measuring one protein at a time and then trying to correlate that to some disease process the second problem has been well gosh even if we could measure thousands of proteins at a time how would we be able to make any sense out of it Um, and so the thing that's just happened to occur uh, and that someologic happens to be at the, you know, at the at the leading edge of is we figured out a w- way to measure thousands of proteins at a time rather than hundreds. is what almost everybody else in the world does uh, in sort of a clinical commercial context. And then we have been able to, d- to use machine learning to look at those patterns of protein expression of those thousands of proteins and correlate them to things that you really want to know about.
0: Well, what exactly does your SomaScan platform do and, and how does it work?
1: Yeah, so um, to sort of back up into the technology itself, uh, what, what our founder discovered 30, 30 years ago is that um, you can actually take little pieces of, of nucleic acid, of, of DNA, uh, in, in, in solution. So when they're in you know, the body's liquid format, these little pieces of DNA will fold into 3D conformational shapes. Um, And he knew in his research group knew 30 years ago that RNA, which is very similar to DNA in cells, actually does this. It folds into conformational shapes and moves proteins around in in cells and has important roles. So his question was, why can't we just make a library of millions of different little pieces of DNA and select the ones out that by dint of their shape would bind to the shape of a protein. You know, people thought it was crazy. <laughs> and so, um, and, and, and these little pieces of, of DNA, they're short, they're not genes, they're just little random sequences of, of nucleic acid um, uh, are called aptamers. Um, and so he was the co-founder of the aptamer science 30 years ago. And what we do is we've developed a library of thousands of these little pieces of DNA. We've modified them to make them bind the proteins even more specifically and reliably, and, and because of that, if you will, we sort of engineered thousands of synthetic antibodies that can recognize proteins, but they're not antibodies, they're little pieces of DNA. And, and the assay that we do, you know, we expose a body fluid to these thousands of, of aptamers we call our somamers because they've been modified to work even better. Uh, and so we just happen to have currently 5,000 different of these, uh, uh, different you know, forms of these. By the end of this year, we'll have 7,500. Um, your proteome has about 20,000 canonical. When I say canonical, I mean basic protein structures. Uh, but again, until we came along, you could only measure a few hundred at a time. So we, we expose the body f- fluid to you know a, a solution full of these somomers, that uh, they bind the proteins, uh, that we throw the unbound protein away and the unbound aptomers away or the somomers away. We then are left with, you know, these little pieces of nucleic acid bound to proteins. We then throw the proteins away (laughs) and we measure the DNA there uh, using, we use an array um, where an array is where, you know, you've got a complementary sequence printed on a slide and, and and you can identify whether or not that sequence was there in your specimen because when it binds to the slide, it lights up. You can also do this with something called next generation sequencing, but what we do is we turn protein measurement into DNA measurement, and that's sort of the magic. Um, as far as the tests themselves that are derived from this, um, the magic there is actually uh, what's best described as, as uh, pattern recognition. And so the way to think about the way the tests work, so you give me your blood sample, we run it, you know, we, we expose it to our cell numbers, We figure out what proteins are in that sample and how much we can do both. Relative to one another. And that, so now we have this pattern of protein expression in your blood for thousands of proteins. We've run this assay several hundred thousand times on human specimens. And what we've done is we've collected this uh, set of machine learning models that correlate patterns of expression of these thousands of proteins to others that have conditions that have known risks or have known diseases or known risks for diseases. And the way to think about it, the way it works is a lot like um, there's something called radiomics uh, where, you know, machine learning uh, has seen millions of images. And when a radiologist sits down to look at an MRI scan, uh, some of these programs can now suggest diagnoses, even if the radiologist can't see it because it sees a pattern in in the film that it's seen, you know, millions of times before that the radiologist can't see. What we're doing is something very similar. We have a pattern of protein expression. Some of the proteins that that determine these predictive models don't even have any known biologic relationship to the disease, but they're reproducibly there with others. And it's this pattern that can tell us things that we've never been able to know before.
0: Is sensitivity an issue? Are you able to detect proteins in extremely low quantities?
1: Yeah, that's the thing. So one of the problems with using – so the two technologies that are currently used to measure proteins exclusive of us uh, are antibodies, uh, the use of antibodies. And people have heard a lot about antibodies recently in the context of COVID-19, obviously. You know, there's sort of the body's protein recognition system. Uh, And then the other way to do it is using something called mass spec, where you basically uh, use um, a physics methodology. To sort of understand, you know, what you're looking at in the mass spec machine, uh, based on the physical principle, physical characteristics of the protein itself. So the pro- problem with antibodies is they can't, they can only measure, um, currently at most in most contexts, hundreds of proteins at a time. It may be possible to measure a couple of thousand uh, in some contexts, but it's very difficult. And antibodies cannot find super low concentration proteins mass spec can do most of this but the problem with mass spec is that it's cumbersome expensive and not scalable or all that reproducible in regards to the results you get so um so it is important uh you know once you get past the first three or four thousand proteins you begin to get into the proteins between that and the 20,000 that are uh are difficult to find in part because they're low concentration but as it turns out some of those are important in these uh, pattern recognition machine learning models.
0: We've heard a lot about the advances in genomics, uh, kind of a, a Moore's law. Have we seen the same types of advances with
1: proteomics? No, proteomics has been a bit more of a slog, <laughs> to be honest. And it's really interesting, uh, if you think about it, um, is it turns out the genome is a fairly simple you know, chain of molecules, right? Four base pairs, reproducible. We always know where it is, right? I mean, you can always find it in the nucleus of a cell. Um, And so, as it turns out, measuring genes um, and then, you know, finding ways to measure genes more quickly uh, has progressed along at a very rapid pace over the last uh, 20 years. Uh, As you said, Moore's Law for Biology has really been applied to that. Proteomics has been hard. It's taken us 20 years to get at logic, to 7,200 or so by the end of this year of the canonical 20,000 protein structures. And the reason for that is that proteins, you know, all 20,000 have a different shape. All 20,000 have a different half life. Uh, they, they exist in different parts of the body. Um, as you mentioned, they exist in different concentrations. And so the measurement of proteins, of thousands of proteins, has turned out to be a technically very challenging project um, has not moved along <laughs> at a Moore's law pace, um, you know, for, for those reasons.
0: Is the ultimate promise of this, that you can in essence run multiple tests at once rather than looking for a specific disease presence?
1: Yeah. So there's, there's several things about this type of tests that are really fascinating and you know my background is is a is, uh, originally as a clinician and, and, a, and a translational scientist and so uh, when I got the call from the recruiter to look at this job a little over you know two years ago I literally tried to take it over the phone with the recruiter and she said I had to actually interview um but the promise for these tests is really amazing and l- let's just walk through w- why that's true um the first thing to realize is that basically all of diagnostic medicine, if you think about it, so if you look at a CT scan, uh, you're looking at proteins. I mean, you're looking at the an image, a cross-sectional image of the body. Now, there's some minerals in there too because of the bones, but everything else is basically made out of protein, right? And so when you're interpreting a CT scan, you're indirectly looking at proteins in the body. When you take a blood pressure me- measurement, Uh, you know, with a, with a blood pressure cuff on someone's arm, you're indirectly measuring the, the action of proteins in the body, hormones, uh, catalysts, reagents that are, you know, having an impact on, you know, some want to lower the blood pressure, some want to raise the blood pressure, some want to tighten up the vasculature, some want to relax the vasculature. You're measuring all of these protein interactions indirectly. When a doctor does a physical exam, you know, when he looks in your throat or palpates your neck, um, he or she is examining proteins indirectly. And so what we've done here is we've just gotten right to the source. And because of that, um, some fascinating things uh, seem to be uh, uh, involved. The first is that we're able to see risks that traditional diagnostics can't. Um, So we know that, for example, in cardiac disease, 15% or so of acute events that people have, you know, once they get up into their 60s or older, or in individuals that weren't thought to have any risk factors. We also know if you're a doctor um, treating patients, that even patients that you feel like you're treating at the top of your license, I mean, you're really leaning in on this patient, you're ma- you know, managing everything. It's a diabetic, you've got their sugar under control, they've got a little hypertension, you've got that under control, they're coming in to see you every two months. You know they're fit. We know that in that population, things still happen, right? I mean, that's why that's just it's just accepted in medicine that happens. And what we're being being able to do with these tests is to be able to tell a clinician this person may not look like they have any risk, but they do. And this person you may think you're maximally managing them, but they still have risk. Um, and then, of course, uh, the ability the the ability to replace what I would call a big box. More invasive, more expensive, less convenient diagnostics in some case, is also an incredible, uh, you know, advance for both, uh, you know, safety, um, convenience, and mainly for cost of healthcare. So we we have a test, for example, that can tell you if you've got fatty liver, uh, something called Nash, and can even tell you what the histologic subtypes of that disease are. And the gold standard for that diagnosis is sticking a needle in someone's liver. Um, we can tell you what your primary cardiovascular risk is for a heart attack or stroke over the next three years with a blood test without you having to get a, you know, non, non-exercise non stress test without having to, you know, have three or four visits to the physician. We can tell you what your VO2 max is, so what your aerobic fitness is, a thing that, you know, athletes and armchair athletes, you know, do sort of on an annual basis without you having to get on a treadmill and exercise yourself to exhaustion. So, you know, the ability to see risk that's not discernible from other methods and then the ability to replace diagnostics that are more invasive, more expensive, or less convenient is is, is going to be transformational.
0: Well, what's the result that's delivered to a clinician? How much interpretation is provided?
1: Sure. So currently we've, we've released, you know, our first 10, 10 of these tests. We have more than 100 in the pipeline uh, here, these protein pattern recognition tests that can tell you things about you know, either a current condition like you know some aspect of your uh, of your of your uh, body morphology, like you know what's my visceral fat, what's my what's my rib fitness, what's my um, um, total body fat. We can do all those things, and then also you know this, these disease predictions, so things like your primary cardiovascular risk um, and so forth. So we released the first ten tests into a test the test market, what we call our test market, the concierge practices. In the local Colorado area here, right before the pandemic, Um, and what we provide physicians and patients with uh, is um, it depends on the test, of course. So, in the case of you know total body fat, we give them a readout of you know percentages, and so your total body fat is in this percentage range, Uh, and they're relatively narrow ranges. (laughs) And and then for cardiovascular risk, we basically say you know you're either at low medium, intermediate, or high risk. And then we quantify that with a clinician and the patient saying, you know, it's, it's a, you know, one in one in a hundred, one in 50 or one in four. Um, And so, uh, you know, we don't give them the list of proteins back. We do all that bioinformatics work here. We just give them a result back. We either tell them, you know, for, for, for example, it's one of these health and wellness tests about body composition. We'll tell you what your percent body fat is. If it's a test for risk, we tell you um, we bend that risk into categories and tell you, uh, you know, with something that you can understand, just how high that risk is.
0: What have you done to to validate the test?
1: So the tests, uh, as it turns out, um, are heavily validated. <laughs> we don't release them until we do a couple of things. So the first thing we do is we decide at the beginning of the development of one of these tests, what the existing truth standard for diagnosis already is and how accurate that is, right? So what's the sensitivity and specificity of the existing diagnostic method? So, for example, if we're going to try to create a test um, that um, is as good as an ultrasound or a biopsy for liver fat, we then have to try to create a model that has similar sensitivity and specificity, and so what we start out with is we, we we find out what the truth standard, the existing diagnostic truth standard is in our in our pre-test development documentation includes. We're not going to release this test until it reaches this level of sensitivity and specificity. Um, so that's that's the first thing we do. The this, the second thing we do um, is that. Once we create a test, what we think has, you know, that sensitivity and specificity. And so we create these from, what we do is we take existing blood samples from patients that have these conditions or these risks or these body types. Um, And so we'll develop the model from a known set of samples. Um, And then then what we do is we actually take an unknown set of samples and we've got access to these um, uh, because we've made arrangements with biobanks and pharma around the world over the last several years you know, to have access to these samples. We then take a blinded set of samples. So this is basically a retrospective virtual clinical trial, right? These are humans. It's no different from walking down downtown Los Angeles and drawing 1,000 tubes of blood. It's the exact same thing. So we take a blinded set of samples and we run the test on those samples. And then we look to see what was the risk in that population for this disease or what were the incidents of this disease. Uh, and only at that point, when we've validated that the model actually works as we thought it would, with the appropriate sensitivity and specificity, do, do we release these.
0: Are these tests reimbursable?
1: Um, so they're not reimbursable currently, you know, through third party. So uh, you know, this is a new diagnostic platform, and so currently uh, we can be paid for them under something called an LDT laboratory developed test CLIA license and so we have we, we do have a, a a laboratory certification that allows us if a physician agrees that he or she thinks the test is valid we we can be paid but we have to be paid uh you know we, we're not paid by insurance currently uh, that takes a longer period of time and we're we're walking down that path um, and one of the problems with achieving third-party reimbursement for diagnostics is that It's expensive and it takes a long time. And so, uh, and the thing that's different about our platform compared to most diagnostics is that we're not going to market with a single test. You know, our company isn't built around a test that tells you if you've got colon cancer or not. We're going to have a hundred of these tests on our platform over the next five years. And so, we will select out some of the tests that we feel like um, are more likely to be used uh, only in, you know, a physician-patient relationship or Embedded in a treatment plan that's already exists, um, and we'll seek reimbursement for those. But the others are likely to be paid for in other ways, either um, you know by individuals themselves, or if you think about some of these tests. So, for example, we have a test in development that will tell a tell us if a diabetic has a risk for a secondary complication in the next three years. And if you think about if you're a health system that's managing that risk, or if you're an insurer, the ability to take you know all Hundred thousand of your diabetics run this blood test on them, and then know which four thousand of those hundred thousand are most at risk. This is information you don't have now, by the way, um, or the information that you have is very crude. Uh, then we we are likely also to be paid to use these tests in more sort of a population or care management way, and and there's a lot of things that are paid for in this context now, like software, care managers bolt-on to EHRs and so forth that are paid for that aren't necessarily reimbursable. They're paid out of CapEx or OpEx. And so, well, it'll be a combination of these things over time.
0: This is not only being used as a, a diagnostic tool, but it's also being used as a research tool. You mentioned work you're doing around NASH, which is fatty liver disease. Yes. How does this test compare to, say, a liver biopsy in terms of process and cost and, and outcomes.
1: Well, um, first just to mention about the discovery component of our business. And so basically, you know what we've been doing for the last several years is delivering this protein information to farm and academic investigators as a discovery tool. So and that's fundamentally different from the diagnostic you know emerging diagnostic business that I just talked about. Although there is some crossover, and NASH is a good example, there are some of these tests that that actually pharma uh, customers want to use in the context of clinical trials. They not only want the protein information, so they can go back and look at that and decide if there's drug development insights to be gained from that, but they also are interested in using these tests. So NASH is a great example. One of the impediments to getting a trial done for NASH is convincing people that they should have a liver biopsy on the front end. And so if you had a tool that could, that could, you know, with great, in this case, it would be, you'd want it to be really sensitive. In other words, you'd want your false negative rate to be really low. So if you had a tool that had a, that had high sensitivity that you could enter patients into these trials with, and then actually monitor the progress of drugs, um, well, then that would be wonderful. And that's what we have. And so obviously... The risk of a blood draw versus a, you know, liver biopsies aren't high risk, but, you know, anytime you start sticking needles into into the human body, there are some risks involved for sure. So that risk is eliminated uh, compared to a blood draw. Uh, the sensitivity is quite high. Um, you know, there will only be a few individuals out of 100 we wouldn't be able to recognize that they had NASH. Uh, so the cost is dramatically lower. The safety is higher. That just sort of goes back to this concept of, the ability to use this sort of data to replace, in some cases, invasive or expensive uh, technologies to get, to get to an answer.
0: I understand you're also using the platform for work around COVID-19. Are you using the tests there and have any interesting findings come from it?
1: Well, it's too early to know if we're going to have uh, interesting findings, but we certainly hope so. Uh, and again, one of the reasons we have so many uh, pharma companies that work with us like Novartis and Amgen and others is that you do get interesting findings when you're able to measure thousands of proteins at a time rather than hundreds. And so the first context that we're being used in here is we are working with pharma and academic partners. We are running their, their COVID samples uh, for a number of them you know, and giving them the information back for their own use for disease characterization and you know, drug development or vaccine development. So we're that's the thing we normally do in our discovery business, but we have shifted a component of our business and you know, we have a special lab space we have ppe and so forth we're and 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 we were prepared to do this because we've done it previously with other infectious diseases we've got a segment you know specifically dedicated to servicing pharma and academics that want to get insights you know from the protein information the second level of things that we're doing we're talking to the government about you know so that's great, but what else could we do since we have this ability with protein pattern recognition to potentially see risks that you couldn't see otherwise? And so we're also working uh, to try to develop uh, a test that will tell you um, if you're uninfected with with uh, SARS-CoV-2 or if you're just recently infected, what your risk of severe disease is. You know, the problem with this disease, of course, is that... Um, well, there's lots of problems with this disease, but one of them is that while a significant percentage of patients have known risk factors, you know, for severe illness, there's a substantial minority that do not. And then that's the most frightening thing about COVID-19, right, is that, you know, with influenza, if you're not, you know, elderly or um, and somehow uh, at risk because of you know, comorbid conditions, You know, you just sort of, you know, you get your flu shot and if you get the flu, it's not too bad and you're going about your life. The likelihood of someone with no underlying conditions dying of the flu is exceedingly low. It's not exceedingly low with COVID-19. And so how do you identify that risk? And there's a couple of reasons that would be important. One is that we could potentially get people back into the workforce more quickly without them having to have been vaccinated or have been infected and have at least temporary, as we think now, protection from, you know, reinfection. The second thing is who gets the vaccine first? I mean, this has been a big question in the media. Uh, You know, who do you vaccinate first? And so some things are obvious, right? Healthcare workers, people over the age of 80, people with, you know, immune compromise. But what about everybody else? Because we know that you or I may be at high risk. We just don't know it, even though we don't meet any of those criteria. So that's, that's a great application too. And then lastly... Uh, even in people that are recently infected, who's at risk for severe disease? And who's, you know, if we can find a drug, and we haven't yet, but, you know, I, I've actually got great faith that we will in the next several months here. If we can find a drug that taken early in the course of disease could reliably deflect severe disease, well, then who gets that drug and who doesn't, especially if it's in limited supply or expensive or has side effects? Um, lastly, just mentioning that. Because these little aptamers themselves can recognize proteins, we've got a little Skunkworks project we've been working on to develop uh, somamers that bind to the spike protein of the virus, um, which could have therapeutic or diagnostic import. It's going to take us longer to get to, but it's just worth mentioning that um, that that's 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 part of our work as well.
0: I think many of us have been anticipating the advent of precision medicine in the. A- a fuller way than we've seen it. What do you think your platform will do to move us toward that?
1: I think there's a couple of things. One is, you know, the again, the at the at the highest level, sort of at, you know, the basic clinical level, the ability so that example I gave earlier, the ability to look at a population of patients where currently it's really hard to discriminate risk. Um again, you know, with clinical data, with EHR data um, there's, we can get a certain way down that pathway, but the, for a lot of things, you know, the output that we get is relatively crude around, you know, what the real risk is and who's really at biologic risk. I mean, that we're making guesses on the basis of sort of statistics in that way, right? I mean, it's, it's a population-based approach that uses, you're probably at risk because other people look like they may be at risk like this. And but this is different. This is actually drawing blood from your body and measuring your proteins and using that as our information source. And so the ability to, again, an example of this 100,000 diabetics to tell a health system or, or a national health service that these 4,000 patients are the ones at highest risk and you need to bear down on these. And the 96,000, not so important. They can go on about their business, but if you don't, you know, develop, you know, more intensive treatment for these 4,000, you know, a lot of these people are going to have a problem. So, that's, that's a huge precision medicine advance to be able to be that precise. I think at the level of the individual, uh, what we've seen in a couple of early studies is that this information has a different impact on them than your traditional, you know, clinical advice, right? So, um, when I was, uh, before I moved to Boulder, my, uh, one of my neighbors, a young woman, unfortunately, got a genetic test back that said she had BRCA1. Um, and so, she didn't ignore that, right? I mean, she, she had a BRCA1 mutation, which meant she was at high risk for breast, in, you know, and ovarian cancer. And so, she went and had prophylactic surgery in her 30s. And so, because that was her body, her information, somewhat immutable, right? I mean, it's like, you know, you got a 90% risk. <laughs> you, you need to act on this. You know, the problem with it sitting in a doctor's office and being told, you know, hey, Joe, you're a little overweight, you're a smoker, you know, you got a little metabolic syndrome, your glucose is a little high, you're not quite diabetic yet. You really should make these changes because you could be at risk for, you know, a heart attack. But what I can tell you from having been a cancer doctor, a cancer surgeon, <laughs> is that, you know, the human impulse is, is, to, is to think that, Well, that might statistically be true, but I don't think it applies to me, right? And so, this is one of the problems getting people to act on information to to take more responsibility for their health. In two small studies, uh, uh, neither of which have been published, so I don't want to quote them, but they will both be published. We actually just got some data back yesterday from a clinical collaborator, uh, you know, working with patients around primary cardiovascular risk tests. The percentage of individuals that actually change their behavior. On the basis of these test results is really high. It's more like that, you know, single gene mutation information from genomics. The problem is, is that very few things give you single gene information risk, uh, and we'll be able to reach into all those diseases using proteomics to tell people, you know, if you're told that you've got a one in four risk of a heart attack in the next three years, and you thought you had no risk, and this is based on your biology, not on some you know, look at twenty thousand other people and their clinical characteristics, which, by the way, were all indirect measures of proteins. The impact on precision health, from the in in you know, in regards to the ability to get people to change their behaviors, could be could be a huge. Um, uh, the the last thing it bears mentioning around precision health uh, is just the development of new therapeutics. Um, You know, we know because of genome-wide sequencing that we can find, we're now being able to find all sorts of genomic abnormalities that could predict, you know, risk for, for, you know, for some diseases. The the problem is is that drugs target proteins. And um, we also know that, you know, the first round of biologic treatments, um, mostly directed at cancer, a lot of those drugs didn't work very well. And we were all scratching our head because I was a clinician when, you know, the first round of these things came out. And we were, were like, well, this is a genetic abnormality that seems to be somewhat common in these people. Why doesn't the drug work? Because it's targeting the protein that gene makes. Um, and so it should work. And it, they don't work most of the time. It don't, they don't work most of the time because a lot of the, you know, the therapeutic targets that are, um, that are alluded to in the genome you know, it's not the protein from the gene that, that is altered. It's, it's that that altered gene and protein affect another gene that has another protein. That's just called a pleiotropic effect. And so, you know, a large percentage of diseases, um, if you can't measure enough proteins, you can't find the targets for the therapeutics. Um, it's like looking for a needle in a haystack. And so I'd say the most, the most granular level impact of this will be the ability to, to develop new drugs and new treatments.
0: Roy Smyth, CEO of Somalogic. Roy, thanks so much for your time today.
1: Yeah, thank you. Great questions, and I enjoyed the conversation.
0: Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager.